Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here in a new year, another year, Father, in which we can study about you and learn about you and understand how to serve you. Another year, Father, in which we can proclaim your truth, your glory, your gospel to the world, to the nations. Another year, Father, in which we can anticipate your son's return. And as much as we welcome this year, Father, and we look forward to it, we also pray that it would be the last year that our waiting would end and that we would see the the return that we long for, that Christ would come for his church. And in the meantime, we devote ourselves, Father, to prayer and to the study of your word. May the word this morning prepare us for that coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have been making reference to chapter 38 really since we started the beginning of chapter 37 and this whole section on the toldot of the generations of Jacob. And at the time, we learned then that this final section on Jacob's sons dealt specifically with two of those sons, Judah and Joseph. Those sons are the focus because one will receive the birthright and the other will receive the seed promise. Joseph will receive the birthright and Judah the seed promise. Now, the birthright is that principle of inheritance that stipulates that the oldest will receive a double portion. The firstborn will receive a double portion of all that is granted. The seed promise, though, was that unique aspect of Abraham's inheritance, one that God himself authored and gave to Abraham. And it passed, of course, from Abraham to Isaac and now from Isaac to Jacob. The seed promise says that through this line, God would bring a seed that would bless all the nations of the earth. And Paul tells us in Galatians that that seed was a specific veiled reference to Christ himself. So the inheritance that Abraham has that he's passed along to Isaac and and now is passed to Jacob is an inheritance that has a birthright and has a seed promise. Up till this point, those two have gone together. From Abraham to Isaac, the seed promise and the birthright moved to the same man, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In fact, the entirety of the inheritance moved to Isaac and to Jacob. But now, those two will be divided. Those two have been separated out. So the story of Jacob's sons is a story, really, of two of them. Of the one that receives the birthright and the one that receives the seed promise. So these two stories are the dominant issue we're looking at, and they're very closely related. In fact, you could say that the story of Judah makes necessary the story of Joseph. In the story of Joseph, we're learning about a man who is sent to Egypt by God for the sake of his birthright, so that he will obtain the birthright over his brothers. Because remember, Joseph is not the firstborn. He does not have the natural birthright in human terms. But he is the one God has appointed to have that birthright. So Joseph first will demonstrate his worth in receiving it through his suffering while in Egypt. He will demonstrate that he is one who is worthy of this birthright through his suffering. And then when it is a given to him and he exercises that authority and that, that right over his brothers... It will be seen as one that was done with wisdom and mercy and grace. So from the time he's in Egypt, Joseph will demonstrate he is not only worthy of the birthright, but he is also capable of handling it in the right way. Remember, the birthright didn't just include the double portion. It also included the patriarchal role over the family. 
So Joseph is earning that, in a sense, through his time in Egypt. Now, the story of Judah, on the other hand, which is chapter 38, is a story of why God has to send the rest of Israel into Egypt. Let's begin in chapter 38 to see this now, to see how Judah's story relates to Joseph's story and how these two are working together for God's purposes. Begin in verse 1. Now it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and he went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Shezib that she bore him. Now, to fit chapter 38 into the overall narrative of Genesis, you're going to have to appreciate some timing idiosyncrasies. First, the events of this chapter last about 20 years. So in this one chapter, we're studying 20 years of history. This 20-year period begins at the same point as when Joseph was taken down into Egypt. You notice the chapter began by saying it came about at that time. Well, which time is that? It's the time at the point when Joseph is sent down with the slave traders. Joseph is 17 years old when he's sold into slavery. So this chapter, chapter 38, begins when Joseph was about 17. It's at that time we're told that Judah departs from his brothers, which means he moved out of his father's house. He moves away from the rest of the family. He goes westward, the valley of Shephelah. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. Now, why did he do this? Well, it's not hard to imagine, at least a couple of reasons. First, after he watched his brothers and himself selling Joseph into slavery and then came home and watched his father's intense mourning over all of that, I imagine it was a difficult thing for him to stick around the house at that point. Every time you see his dad mourning, he feels guilt. Every time there's a question about Joseph, he has to play the whole cover story again. He has to retell the lie over and over again. By moving away from this scene and away from his father, he does something to help put away the guilt and to remove the burden of carrying this dirty secret. He can wash his hands of it to some extent and pretend it never happened. He moves out. Secondly, this chapter runs concurrently with the events that we're going to study in later chapters of Genesis, the ones that describe Joseph's time in Egypt. So chapter 38's timeline ends roughly at the same point as when that seven-year famine will begin in the time of Egypt. So it begins when Joseph goes into slavery. Chapter 38 runs concurrently all the way to about the point in history where the famine starts. That's 20 years of history. So when chapter 38 is over, Joseph is like 37 years old. So as we study this chapter, we need to appreciate that these events run concurrently with some of the events that you already know very well about the story of Joseph. The time he spends in Potiphar's house happens during this chapter. The time he spends in prison happens during this chapter. In fact, the first seven years that he rules over Egypt during the time of plenty is still happening during the time of chapter 38. These two stories, the one of Joseph and the one of Judah, they will merge again in chapter 42. 
So that's helpful to understanding how to fit this in. Back to the story. Judah leaves his family in the hill country. He goes down from the hill country toward the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he visits an Adulamite, we're told, named Hirah. Now, Adulam was the name of a settlement in the Shephela. The Shephela is this wide valley down from the hills that stretches from the hill country on the eastern side all the way to the sea, to the Mediterranean Sea, the Shephela Valley. And Adulam was a settlement in this plain. And Judah goes down there. While he's there, we're told, he takes notice of a Canaanite woman who is the daughter of a man named Shua. Now, we're never given the name of the woman. Judah's wife is never named in Scripture. In verse 2, we're told he marries this girl and they begin to have sons. Now, this is the first time, the very first time, that a man in the line of the seed promise has dared to marry anyone outside of the family, to marry a Canaanite specifically. Now, you have to remember, the Canaanite people are that people group that we've learned all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 are cursed by God. They are destined to destruction, according to God's word. And the Lord reiterated this truth when he spoke to Abraham and told Abraham that the land that he was giving him would not be his entirely until 400 years had passed, giving time for the sin of the Canaanites to mature, and then they would see the judgment that God has promised come upon them. So we have heard God say that the people of Canaan are destined to be cursed, to come to an end. So then what does it mean when one of those who are in the line of the seed, the line of the Messiah, marry into the family of a cursed people? Judah is the first to do this, but could the rest of Israel's sons be far behind him? So Judah has now married a woman who is part of the cursed group of Canaanites. And the sons that come from this marriage are to carry the seed promise of Israel. But they're also now a part of a cursed people group. So any sons Judah might bear will be cursed. And that has the potential to doom the line of the Messiah. Can the Lord tolerate this intermarrying? Here's Judah living among a cursed people, a pagan worshiping people. And he is the man carrying the promise that will one day bring the Messiah into the world. The Lord himself, the Holy One of Israel, will be born from this man's descendants. And here he is, the current promise holder, marrying himself with cursed pagan worshipers. How long do you think God's going to let this stand? His three sons here carry this curse, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur means watcher, Onan means strength, and Shelah means weak. And they are born in Shazib, which confirms that he's still living in the Canaanite culture. This is a city in the Shephelah. Now, let's see where we go from there. Verse 6. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, after some years, the boys have reached marrying age. So that gives you an indication right there for how much time this chapter spans. But in their culture, marrying age was teens. So... These boys are probably in their mid to late teens. 
Judah arranges their marriages. That's also common in the culture. He chooses a woman named Tamar. We're not exactly clear on where she comes from at this point. We'll come back to that next week. Tamar's first husband is Ur. Ur is considered an evil man, we're told. He's evil in the sight of the Lord. And so as a result, the Lord takes his life, which leaves Tamar now a widow. And the phrase in Hebrew makes it very clear that the Lord caused this man to die. This is not some natural occurrence in the sense that it was just happenstance. This is directed by God. Ur was cut short. His life was ended because God intervened to make that happen. Now, there's a simple and I think often forgotten principle of Scripture evident in what God is doing here with Ur. The Lord can and does take people's earthly life when it suits him, and in particular as a result of intense sin. And I can't say what the criteria is that God uses to decide when an evil person needs to see an end to their life or when he allows them to live longer. But Scripture does tell us that God may take life to demonstrate that sin has consequences. And he may even take that step against believers if necessary. Acts gives us the quintessential example of that. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, we hear this. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The story of Ananias and Sapphira proves that men cannot sin with impunity, at least not forever. God may permit a man to live a long life and even do so for one who's full of sin. But it is only to that person's disadvantage that God does that. It's to the disadvantage of the individual if they are living a life of sin and God permits them a long life. Why is that so? Well, if you're the unbeliever, the extra time just gives you more opportunity to store up wrath for yourself in the day of your judgment. And if you are a believer, then more time on this earth to sin and to do so without repentance is more opportunity for a loss of reward when our works are evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. So, ironically, if you are intent on a life of disobedience and sin, your best outcome would be to live a short life. Instead, though, the Lord may choose to cut a life short and to do so as an example, like in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. His sin, Ananias' sin, was made an example for the early church so that others would learn to fear the Lord and to respect the apostles' authority. And you can see it had that effect. On another occasion, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about some man who was in the church in Corinth who was doing terrible things. And as a result, Paul dictated that that man be set outside the church and outside fellowship so that, quote, he could experience the destruction of his flesh as a penalty for his sin. So there is a principle in Scripture that God can take the ultimate punishment, if you will, which is to take our earthly life as a consequence for unrepentant sin. Now, that principle didn't end when the apostles died. Even today, there remains a possibility that those who sin with no fear of the Lord are risking 
an untimely death. And you can see it in practical terms all around you. People whose sin leads them to an early death. But we're not strictly talking about the simple mechanics of engaging in risking behavior, doing things that can make death more likely. That's obvious. We all see that without anyone having to explain it. But we're saying that even beyond that, there is a supernatural component. Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I know there's some contention in the church over whether those words were spoken to an unbeliever or to a believer, but by the context, it's very clear. Hebrews 10.30, he says, The Lord will judge His people. This is a reference to how the Lord will address unrepentant sin among those who have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. In the case of Ur, we don't know what his specific evil was. We don't know what prompted his early death, but it doesn't really matter. We know that it served God's eternal purpose to put an end to Ur's life so that Ur would stand as an example. And so that more importantly, the sin of his father, Judah, would not extend into the family of Israel and pollute the future seed of the Messiah. That was the chief concern God had in this family, that Ur's very existence brought a risk to his plan for the Messiah. And so that sin was judged. The curse of the Canaanites was applied. And therefore, there was never to be any hope for Ur to have any part to do with the family of Judah. Now, Ur's sin at an early age has left his young bride a widow. Tamar now has married, but now has no children and now no husband. And under the terms of the law of the day, under the culture of the day, A man who died leaving his wife without an heir, without a son. There was to be a process applied in the family to correct that problem. The law of the day required that the oldest unmarried brother of the man who had died would take that man's widow as his wife, would marry her, treat her as his wife. And in this new marriage now, the very first son that's produced by this new marriage would be considered the son of the dead man, of the brother who had deceased. It did not belong to the man who had married that woman. Now, any subsequent children, any additional sons, would belong to that new marriage. Just the first son was set apart and considered to be the son of the dead man. This was so that the line of that man, the family name of that man, would not die out and his line would continue on after him. This is called a Leverite marriage from the Latin word liver, which literally means a husband's brother. So this was the tradition and the law of the day. After this day, if you were to jump forward in history to the time of Moses, when God gives Israel the law in that future day, he takes this same principle and puts it in the law. 
So the law of Moses includes a provision for this very thing to be done in Israel. The most famous example of it in Scripture is Ruth. The book of Ruth is the story of how a woman is provided for through a Leverite marriage to a man named Boaz. The woman who receives that child from the Leverite marriage is Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. So Naomi receives the child as her son, and then Ruth and Boaz remain married, and all their future children belong to them. That's Leverite marriage at work. So this is the expectation that Judah had for his second son, Onan. Judah expects Onan, that second son, to marry Tamar, the widow of his first son. And Tamar and Onan will produce a son. And the very first son they produce will belong to Ur, that dead brother. But Onan has other ideas. Verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. This is a great family. Things are going splendidly here. Onan takes Tamar as required, as wife. But when it came time to produce a son... For his dead brother, Onan takes action to prevent his wife from conceiving. The Hebrew tense in verse 9 indicates that this was an ongoing behavior. The verb is in a a tense that indicates ongoing behavior, not a one-time thing, but an ongoing thing. So every time he had relations with Tamar, he would prevent Tamar from becoming pregnant. He was willing to take her. He was willing to enjoy the fruits of marriage, but he was unwilling to fulfill his duty to her and to his dead brother. Moses tells us exactly why Onan was taking on this behavior. He knew, it says, that any son that he produced with Tamar would not belong to him. And that's only true for the first one, understand, only the first one. But he does not want to take the risk that the only son he ever produces would be hers. Because who's to say he would have a second son? There's always that risk. There's always a risk that they never produce a second son. And if that were the case, then he himself would lack an heir, a male heir. Not wanting to take that risk, he is withholding any opportunity from Tamar to conceive. Now, how does that play to his advantage? Well, this rule, this law of the Leverite marriage had a provision that said if this woman could never bear a son and reached the age at which she could no longer bear a child, after the age of menopause, in other words, then the husband was at that point released from that obligation and he could now take another wife And he could produce an heir for himself. So in this way, Onan is planning, it appears, to conduct this behavior until the point in which Tamar is so old she can no longer bear a child. And then he will be free to go find another woman and bear a child strictly for himself. His whole concern here is with his inheritance. Remember, Ur is the firstborn. As firstborn, he would have rights to a double portion of Judah's inheritance. But if Ur never has a child the double portion would fall to Onan. So by restricting Tamar from having a child, Onan stands to double his own inheritance. This is a strictly selfish, greedy behavior on Onan's part. And, of course, it's also dishonoring to the family. As Moses says in verse 10, the Lord is not pleased with this behavior, and not pleased is an understatement in Scripture. The word is literally the word ra, which in Hebrew is the word for evil, wicked, 
It's the worst word Hebrew has to describe evil. The suggestion in Hebrew is that Onan was literally working the purposes of evil or Satan, in other words. He's working the purposes of Satan. Maybe without knowing it, Onan was an agent of the enemy playing with or in concert with the enemy's plans. Now, why would the enemy want to prevent Tamar from having a child? How is this working to the benefit of the enemy? Well, remember, Judah is the line of the seed promise. The seed promise. Should the enemy somehow succeed in stopping the line of Judah, stopping the line of the seed promise, then theoretically the Messiah could never be born. If the Messiah could never be born, then the promise God spoke in the garden that his seed would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, that promise could never come to fruition. Satan could theoretically never face judgment. At least that's his thought. And so by preventing Onan's wife from conceiving, now that Ur is already dead, Satan is advancing his own cause by attempting to stop the arrival of the Messiah in some future day. Now, who gave Satan this opportunity in the first place? How did Satan ever even get to the point where something like this was possible? It was Judah. Judah's willingness to bind himself to Canaanites, to evil people, people that have produced evil sons, is what's given rise to this opportunity in the first place. Remember, the Bible teaches that we are always at war with the enemy in a spiritual war. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The people who obstruct God's purposes, in our experience, are people made of flesh and blood, just like Paul says. But they are not the source of the fight. The fight we have in this world, the fight we have with evil, generally speaking, is a spiritual fight that is being directed behind the scenes, outside of our view, in the spiritual realm, by a host of powers that have as their goal the disruption and the frustration of God's plan. They use people, they use flesh and blood, pawns, if you will, on a chessboard, and they're moving them according to their own desires. And those pawns don't even know they're being used most of the time. Onan didn't know this, I would venture. Ur probably didn't understand this, I assume. But they were powerful tools in the hand of the enemy. And Judah is the one who put those tools in the enemy's hand. When we ignore the word of God, just as Judah did here, he ignored the instructions God gave his father and his grandfather that they should not marry outside of the people of Abraham. When he ignored the word of God, he was ignoring the orders of his army commander in this spiritual battle. And in doing so, he unwittingly played into the hands of the enemy. No differently than if on the battlefield of our army, our soldiers stopped listening to our generals and started to do whatever they felt they should do. How long before they would start playing into the hands of the enemy? Once Judah made this mistake, the consequences followed inevitably. Judah produced three sons. They're all pawns of the enemy. They're all evil in their hearts. They're all being directed to act against God's plan, if not by the enemy himself, at least by their flesh. And they are putting at risk the seed promise. Now, as a result of Onan's disobedience, we're told God takes his life as well. 
While it's clear that his sons here are dying as punishment for their wicked ways, you have to also remember these boys are living under the curse of the Canaanites. They could never become part of the line of Judah. Their offspring would carry this curse. The children of God and the children of the enemy can never find a common future. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Of what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Biel? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You know, the answers to all those questions are obviously nothing. Nothing. You have nothing in common. Judah carries the seed promise. His line has an entirely different future planned than the line of the Canaanites. He has nothing in common with them. Not just in personality, not just in values, not just in culture. We're talking eternally. They have nothing in common. They will both end up in an eternally different place. They're supposed to live with that understanding even now. One is cursed, one is blessed. And there simply could never have been a successful union between Judah and Shua's family. God would never have permitted it. And therefore, you have to conclude, God's sovereign power here is at work to stop Judah's sons from ever successfully producing heirs. The Lord here is harnessing the sin of their hearts, once again, and directing it in a way that produces a godly outcome. That's what we've seen him doing already in the story of Joseph. He's doing it here as well in the story of Judah. What's so ironic about this is I bet if you had had a chance to interview Satan in the midst of this moment and ask him, how do you think you're doing? His self-assessment would probably have sounded something like this. Two down, one to go. Almost game over. Not going to happen. No Messiah, no seed. I can see it now. Except in the way God is working these details, he's actually working so as to produce the seed in the proper way. Because with two sons dead and one son left, notice what Judah now recognizes and chooses to do. Verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brother's. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So Ur and Onan have died. Now, naturally, at this point, you'd expect Tamar to have to marry Shelah, which would be the last chance, if you're thinking in earthly terms, about how the seed promise would continue on. Shelah, it appears, may have been too young to marry at this point. I don't know that that's necessarily true. He may have actually been at marrying age because we hear that the real reason that Judah holds him back is not because he couldn't marry so much. It's because he's afraid to let him marry. It says here that Judah saw two sons die early and they both died shortly after marrying Tamar. So Judah mistakes correlation with causation. He notices the correlation Mary died. Mary died. Oh, that's a trend. But what he does is he turns it into causation. They're dying because they're marrying Tamar. That's not true. We understand they're dying because they're sinful and evil and God's taken their life. That has nothing to do with Tamar. But it doesn't matter. Because in the way it plays out, it goes exactly where God wants it to go. Judah is not going to take any more chances. And so he holds back his last son. That's what God wants. He does not want the son of Tamar to be produced by the evil sons of Judah, that being Shelah in this case. He has a different plan. Because now we have the question before us, if it's not going to be through Canaanites that God brings the seed promise of Judah, who is going to be the father of the seed promise? Remember, the father is the one that's going to trace this seed. 
And if the father can't be a Canaanite, what father is going to be able to father the next line of the seed of Judah? Well, there's an answer to that. It comes later in this chapter. In the meantime, the key is to not let it be done through anyone else, and particularly not through the Canaanites. So as we end today, we have Jacob's fourth son, Judah, faced with a sad situation. He has broken the family rule by marrying Canaanites. He placed the seed promise at risk. He has, as a result, lost two sons, and we don't know exactly why, but he lost his wife as well. And if any of the other brothers of Israel the sons of Israel, any of the brothers of Judah, were to follow suit in doing what he's doing, then the entire family line of Israel would be at risk. But God has said that Israel will be blessed, and therefore it stands that this situation cannot last forever. They are going to be separated from the Canaanites. They are going to be preserved. They are going to produce the Messiah. They are going to see the glory God has promised. So now we need to come next week to understand the second half of the story, which is how does Judah actually produce an heir in keeping with God's plan? And one last thought. In light of all of these shenanigans, it makes great sense that God would send the nation of Israel into a land in which they will be enslaved and prevented from marrying anyone outside their own family line, which explains why Judah's situation leads to Joseph's situation and to the nation of Israel following suit. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the chance to study deep and meaningful things, but to also be reminded of how much they apply to us today. Father, our days are numbered, and you have assigned them even before we were born. But we do pray that we live those days out in glory to you and in honor to your word. We ask that if our life be made a testimony, Father, it would be one of obedience and faithfulness. That as our life comes to an end on that appointed day, that it would be a sign of of your pleasure with us and not of your displeasure. Let each of us, Father, be mindful of that as we conduct ourselves in this world while we wait for your son's return. Let us be mindful that our witness is not merely one of convenience, not merely one of reputation, but it may very well affect our life and how long we live. Let us be mindful of these decisions every day. Let us be honoring to your word. Let us consider all that it gives us and let us live according to it. And as always, Father, I pray that we might return next week to continue in our study. In Jesus' name.